Hello and welcome to the Tennis Abstract Podcast. This is episode 44. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Thank you for joining me. As always, Carl, for those of you who don't know, listeners, Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Podcast. Um, he's got a new episode out with a couple of folks from Tennis Australia and their um, data science initiatives going into this year's tournament. So give that a listen after you're done with our episode here today. So we've got a few more tournaments in the books, but most importantly, as we're recording this on Sunday, the 13th of January, we are just hours away from the start of the 2019 Australian Open. And because it's Monday in Melbourne. It is already Monday in Melbourne. Yeah, this is the time when tennis fans just have to keep one tab open with time zone adjustments full time. Um, stay up all night, any, any, whatever's necessary to watch tennis, really. So, yeah, we're like six or six or eight hours away from, from the carnival starting. But the biggest story so far is not the typical, you know, who's going to win the tournament, um, anything like that. It's something even broader in scope than that. And that's the impending retirement of Andy Murray. Uh, he announced on Thursday that he's in too much pain from his hip. He can't train or compete the way that he'd like to, certainly not the way he's accustomed to. Uh, he didn't even get through a practice match with Djokovic without being in pretty severe pain. So he's scheduled to play on Monday against Roberto Batista Agu in the first round. He'd like to make it to Wimbledon to retire there, but he said he's not even sure he'll do that. Uh, I wrote an article already about that for The Economist and really just an appreciation of his career, what he's done for the sport, where he stands in uh, among the all-time greats of the sport. And Carl, I'm curious what your what your thoughts are on that. I mean, just, let's just start with with the initial impressions. Like, it, did you see it coming that Andy Murray would choose to retire at age 31 when his peers are still going so strong? Because I'm the age nerd of the show, he would be 32 if he makes it to Wimbledon, but it still feels young now, which is odd because even 10, 15 years ago, that wouldn't have seemed like a, a young age to retire and he's played a whole lot of matches played a whole lot of tournaments has put a whole lot of wear and tear on his body not to mention that his style is one that makes matches often go long and makes points often go long so he he definitely has has put in his time on tour it, it still does feel premature certainly if you had asked at the start of the 2017 season he was number one in the world coming off his best year how could he be out of tennis in two years? But if you think over his last year or so, when it's just been so many disappointing results, mixed with some small moral victories, mixed with so much pain, just clear physical agony on his part. I mean, I never doubted his desire to come back. He had to mount a major comeback a few years ago as well after surgery. And, you know, clearly loves the sport, loves competing wants to win more big events but n almost nothing we saw last year looked like the old Andy Murray and if the old Andy Murray isn't there it's hard to imagine Andy Murray wanting to play much longer yeah he said something about a year ago we might have talked about it in an earlier episode that that he thought maybe he'd just have to settle for coming back and being someone who's ranked around number 30 in the world and not really have a shot at the top and maybe that was kind of an impossible compromise. Like if, if, if he could play enough to, to maintain that level, he would be better. But clearly, I mean, his body just isn't willing to do that. Um, since he's basically retired, I mean, whatever results he, he tallies this year, I mean, it doesn't seem like they're going to amount to much. Uh, we can start taking stock of his entire career. And one thing I think everyone's going to agree on is of the big four, he's number four. I mean, he, his results don't compare with these other three guys. But at the same time, a lot of his career totals, especially the ones that that didn't rely on beating Federer and Nadal and Djokovic, they're like he's got a lot of top tens. Like I think um, Grand Slam match wins is top ten. Grand Slam semis, Grand Slam quarters. Uh, his his masters counts are are among the best, although that's a, a a bit tricky because those only go back to the 1990s. That ex excludes a lot of the Open era. Uh, but it, it's really tough, I think, to 
to judge to, to give him like a ranking among the all-time greats because he has been fighting against the three guys who might be the three greatest players in tennis history. Uh, what's your sense of that, Carl? Do you do you think there are are other guys who are besides the, the current big three who are unambiguously better than he is? Uh, I mean, if if you had to put a number on it, where would you rank him amongst male players of all time? Seven. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, before you before you explain that probably extremely well thought out answer, uh, we both came up with seven for Serena Williams' 2019 year end ranking. And I saw something that I think is a pretty well-known psychology finding that if you ask random people to, to generate a random number between one and 10, like, I don't know, like 25% or 35% give you seven uh, because it seems random. So I, I, we might need to be more skeptical before assigning seven to these, these questions, but please continue. You're right. I really want to say 6.4, but a decimal didn't make a lot of sense for a ranking. Yeah. Uh, I don't have my exact list, and I need to think about it more. You know, I think Sampras, Connors, Lendl are probably the three most likely for me to slot ahead of, of Murray. Um, and, you know, there are other contenders, of course, including Agassi. I've looked at the ELO numbers when I was at 538 Ben Morris and I did some stories using ELO to rank the all-time greats you've done the same uh, I think Stephanie Kowalczyk and, and other tennis analysts have, have applied ELO to these situations and Murray looks really strong because he did so well against everybody else and sometimes beat the three guys ahead of him and because the three guys ahead of him were so good that when they beat him it didn't really knock him down much so I recognize that by some measures, he, he probably could be number four of all time. And we really might have had an era with the four greatest players of all time. Um, and part of, part of the problem here is what do we really mean by where Murray, you know, the way you put it in the show notes is where does he stand among the all-time greats? And unfortunately, this show and your blog and your economist stories are not going to be the ultimate arbiters. Not yet. We'll get there. Um, so well, we have to wait for Diego Schwartzman to retire, right? That's you, you know this is all premature. That's a great point. He's he's really going to replace Murray in the Big Four and and challenge the meaning of the word big. Um, I I just I, I think Murray's total of only three Slam titles and only three is with tongue in cheek, of course. But also, it's so much lower than the the guys who are from previous eras who I mentioned from their to totals. That's just going to hurt him, and it's going to be really hard for him to, to overcome that deficit. And I think statistically, we can make a lot of cases for why it's not fair to judge him by that, why those guys would have struggled to reach three against Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer for all those years. Uh, I also think, you know, if we were guessing about Murray two years ago, it would be a very different conversation because we probably would have projected a lot more for him than what he's been able to achieve because of his injuries in the last couple of years. Yeah, that, that's going to be a, a big part of the discussion, I think, especially if Djokovic goes on to have a few more strong years. I mean, if, if he, even if he just, <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but even if he only wins like one slam per year for the next three years, then it's going to be natural to look at their two careers. I mean, they they were born one week apart, right? So uh, whatever Djokovic could do at any given age, it's somewhat reasonable to transfer that over and say, barring injury, Murray could have done it too. But, but yeah, that's really tough to do in tennis because staying healthy, maybe partly having the sort of game style that allows you to stay healthy, uh, like you, you were suggesting earlier with the fact that he's put so much wear and tear on his body just from the way he plays, uh, that... You can't just take that out. So surely there's some bad luck involved in the fact that Murray had to be the first one of the big four to retire because of such nasty injuries. But at the same time, you can't just do an adjustment as if the injury didn't exist. I mean, what I always think about is in in baseball greatest of all time discussions, we look at the people who served in the military and, and analysts have figured out like, okay, Ted Williams missed 
a total of five and a half years to World War II and the Korean War or whatever. And they figure out what he would have been likely to achieve in those years and and add that to his career totals. And, of course, it looks pretty amazing. And maybe there are some players for whom it would be logical to do the same thing with, with injuries in tennis. But for a player who retires at 32, you can't really say that he should have lasted until 35 or 36. Uh, doesn't Doesn't quite make sense. Um, the other thing I'm, I, I touched on in my Economist article was that Murray has, I mean, I would argue Murray has done more for the sport off court than the other three members of the big four. I mean, he's, he's the only one who's been outspoken about gender equality. I mean, hiring Amelie Moresmo was a, a huge step, I think, in the direction of, of opening the door to, to female coaches on the men's tour. Uh, just the fact that he is outspoken at all about almost anything sets him apart from the other three guys, as well as almost every male tennis player. Uh, and I think that that could make him a much bigger personality, a much more effective advocate or coach or really anything he sets his mind to uh, after he's retired. In, Carl, what, what direction do you think he will go with so many so many options available to him after retirement? I don't know. It's a great question. I hadn't thought about it until you raised it. I, I think he has a lot of options and I think he knows it. And also he's younger than he expected to be when he retired. So he may well just want to not do anything tennis related for a little while and spend time with his family spend time also just getting healthy. I mean, I think one of the reasons this retirement affected a lot of fans emotionally was the anguish that he's clearly in and the pain he's in, even when he's not playing tennis or trying to train. He, he's, I got to imagine that he's got to have as one of his top priorities, just being healthy enough to not feel pain doing everyday things. And then he can start focusing on the future. When he does, you mentioned coaching you could imagine him taking all kinds of positions within the sport, whether it's a tournament director, as some of his recently retired peers have done, or something within British tennis. I think British sport is very eager to embrace him as one of its all-time greats, uh, from what I've seen of the coverage. like The the press and commentaries can be pretty harsh when, when people are active, but tend to be pretty adulatory when they're um, – when they've – retired. And I also think he'll probably talk a lot with his brother and with his mom. I mean, they're so, so big in tennis as well, Judy and Jamie, and will have ideas. And I imagine they, they have dreams about Scottish tennis that he'd like to, to see to fruition and could really make a big difference in including just greater access to the sport in a country that has really tough conditions for playing it outdoors yeah I mean, it, that's a good point I, it's one thing to think of him as as a brit which is a country that has this as long of a tennis tradition as as anywhere else with wimbledon and everything else um but at the same time he identifies with a place that doesn't have much of a tennis tradition and that's something that that judy has put a lot of effort into and and jamie and andy to maybe a lesser extent so far um but yeah, that's definitely a factor. I personally, I hope he doesn't go the tournament director, sport, politician, executive route that so many players take, just because that seems like the the sort of safe. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how to describe this, but it it, it seems like what you can ex- what you can expect from from the guys who weren't outspoken as players. Like it it it's just safe. You can you can take your your very diplomatic style of answering press conference questions as a player straight into a diplomatic style of handling press conferences as a tournament director and so on and i mean i think a lot of people won't like this comparison but i was just i was just watching a an older match earlier today and john McEnroe was on the call as he so often is and you know it's fashionable these days to to pile on john McEnroe for his limitations in the commentary booth but He's a really bright guy. He's really interesting to listen to when he's talking about things he knows. And I can see Andy Murray sliding directly into the John McEnroe role. As, I was just thinking that, yeah. 
yeah, the entertaining former player um, has tons of great stories, has a, a sharp sense of humor, willing to mix it up with anybody else in the commentary booth, uh, someone that players are comfortable comfortable with. Um, yeah, and he'll actually have specific insights about each player, w- woman and man, because he watches a ton of tennis. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a really good point, because that, that's the one thing that I think people criticize McEnroe the most for, is if, if McEnroe's calling a match between you know Djokovic and Mitchell Kruger in the first round of the Australian Open... Uh, he's going to have a lot of things to say about Djokovic, and then he's going to repeatedly refer to Mitchell Kruger as an up-and-comer because that's the only thing he knows about Mitchell Kruger, whether it's true or not. Uh, Andy Murray probably watched a live stream of Mitchell Kruger's last Challenger quarterfinal. So, And then texted him afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and then, then texted him afterward. Probably has an idea of what his career peak ranking is likely to be, what his weaknesses are. So, so yeah, Murray would be... like. John McEnroe, if John McEnroe were what everyone wanted him to be, but that I think if I had, if it were up to me to choose Andy Murray's career path from here on out, that's that's what I would choose. But uh, of course, I don't think that's the, the the top consideration Andy will take into into account. Top ten. I mean, I think that it's what's great about those gigs is they can be pretty short term and not that taxing. So I think there's a good chance we will hear Murray do at least some of that in the year after he retires and that would still leave room for him to do things that maybe he cares about more i I wanted to also throw in a very overly careful caveat you you said he's the first to retire from the big four and i've heard a lot of people say that i hope all the big four are healthy and still playing tennis by wimbledon i expect it but you know they are all in their in the years that some would consider old so you never know yeah, that's true. I mean, you can definitely see Nadal hobbling his way to a 12th, is it now, Roland Garros title, and then deciding to retire Sampras style. Uh, I think Federer will make it past Wimbledon just so he can retire in Basel or something. Uh, and it, he's got to play that. the Laver Cup. Even, he like <laughs> specifically said that last year when he was asked what his plans are. Okay, so so yeah. So, yeah, I think the, the odds are still pretty heavy in favor of of Murray being the first to retire, but, but point taken. Uh, I was thinking when I was when I was writing that article, I had never really written anything in that style before. It felt a little weird to be kind of writing an obituary for a mostly healthy 31-year-old. Uh, but but I, it, it did come home to me that it was not the last article of that style I'd be writing, and perhaps not in a pretty short period of time, as you point out. I mean, we could... We could enter the 2021 tennis season with zero of the big four, and it wouldn't be a, a huge surprise. And you have to write it soon about Safarova. Yes, yes. We uh, on our, initially on our show notes, we were we were planning on talking a lot about Lucy Safarova because her plan was to retire at the Australian Open, but she has a wrist problem, so she's not playing. Uh, she hasn't announced a new farewell tournament, but it sounds like she's going to play somewhere else as a farewell. So I think we'll talk about that more then. I'm not sure whether The Economist is going to go for a, a piece on Lucy Safarova, but I will I'll pitch it hard. Well, when she wins her farewell French Open, they'll probably take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they would take it then. No question about that. Um, the other, we are going to get to some Australian Open preview stuff. But there's one other big topic I want to touch on before we get there, and it is related to Murray's retirement and what we could have expected from him in his 30s. And what that is, is just getting a sense of how aging works in tennis these days. And many of you hopefully have, have read the, the post that I wrote earlier this week. It was, it was prompted by Ivo Karlovich, who we talked about on last week's podcast. Karlovich is 39 years old. He turns 40 next month. He reached the the final in Pune. He came within two points of beating Kevin Anderson there. Uh, he's, depending on how you look at the numbers, he's not that far off where he was at his best. Maybe that maybe that's an exaggeration, but the fact that he's a competitive tour level player at age thirty nine is just mind boggling. So, I dug into uh, some. It was just a, a basic attempt at constructing a an aging trajectory for for men's tennis players on the assumption that we'd see some sort of peak around maybe age 28 or age 30, a gradual climb up to that point through your 20s, and then a gradual decline after that. And I, I have tinkered with this before and run into the same problems. 
one of the big issues is that players normally don't steadily decline. They do what Murray just did. Like they might have a short decline and then get injured and call it a day. They might not have a decline at all. And they might just decide to retire because they don't want to play anymore. Like Pete Sampras did. Um, there just aren't very many players who follow what we kind of assume the curve looks like. So when you dig into the numbers and look at players who, who play at least half seasons, you find that in their thirties, players keep improving. I mean, it's, it's bizarre when you look at some of the resulting graphs, but you see so many guys these days who are playing at or near their peak well into their mid-30s when that doesn't really make a lot of sense given what we see in other sports, given what we think the skills are that go into playing elite level tennis with speed and quickness and anticipation and all those kind of things. Uh, but players are somehow defying that and and improving well past the point that we expect them to. So I'm curious, Carl, what, what your take on that is. I mean, I, I don't think my my uh, analysis is perfect. I think there's a lot more work to be done on this, so this isn't the final word. Uh, but do you buy this, that players on average are able to keep improving well into their 30s like this? Yeah, I think what you found is that, at least within the age range we're talking about, we're not talking about into the 40s or 50s or something, that the single biggest limiting factor probably is some kind of major injury that it's not it's not nearly as much about the body slowly deteriorating uh and and not being what it once was or even if that is happening it's being overcome by the benefits of having played longer having trained longer having gotten smarter about scheduling and and approach to matches um, and I think that that's a pretty appealing and sensible story that it's not, it's not just that at least within one's thirties, I say as a 39 year old, um, you, you're still capable of, of doing incredible athletic things. You just are at greater risk each year. Uh, either you're at greater risk or greater cumulative risk because your stats show that, People are dropping out of the tour entirely, even in their young 20s. So it's it's just something that happens and then keeps happening at a higher rate each year as they age. So the guys who, the the players, this, this would go for the women's tour too, although your analysis was on the ATP, where the ages are a bit older, the, um, the, the players who are able to avoid that major injury can continue to improve, not just stick around, but even get better. So if if this all turns out to be right, and and I've hoped to do a lot more work to pin down exactly what this means and and maybe make it a little more of a solid finding, do you think that one one consequence of that is that that players should be more careful with their health in their twenties and early thirties? Like maybe that would mean uh, I hate to go down this road, but shortening the season or playing a more limited schedule or just recognizing that like they're not going to peak at 25, that they need to act at 25 in a way that maximizes their chance of peaking maybe even 10 years later. Absolutely. That was the biggest, uh, the biggest message for me from uh, the point of view of what players could do differently. I mean, even at 25, not only are they potentially trading off years down the road if they try to optimize for their performance that year, they're also at risk of having the major injury then. That was really striking to me. I think that maybe players in their young 20s who haven't yet had a very serious um, injury that, that kept them from playing for a long time might feel somewhat invincible. And the the numbers say that, yeah, maybe their chances are better because they've been healthy so far. But nonetheless, a lot of players do miss some significant time or just, you know, leave the tour even forever at that age. So they're protecting against that happening now and in the future. I agree clearly like more study needs to be done around what, what are the actual injuries and are they things that are avoidable? Are some players just prone to injuries and there's not much they can do about it, so they should just get what they can when they can? 
uh, there's definitely a lot more to answer, but that looks like the overall shape of the story now. Yeah, it, 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 it's one of the rare times that I've I've done a tennis analysis and just been kind of baffled by the results. Uh, there's so many negative results where you expect to see some strong effect and there's nothing, or you expect to see an effect and it's pretty much what you expect. But but to see this curve that just kind of steadily staggers upward through your 30s, as long as you can stick around, it really defies the, the typical story that we hear and makes me wonder if Ivo Karlovich will ever retire. Uh, or maybe same story with John Isner, who we touched on last week. You led this this topic in our conversation by calling it a big topic. I think it's going to be a good nickname for Karlovich. <laughs> the big topic? Yeah. Yeah, if he needs a rapper name, maybe that would work. <laughs> um, one guy at the opposite end of the age spectrum who maybe some of what you're talking about, Carl, applies to is Alex Dimonor, who plays a very physically demanding, dare I say, Andy Murray-style game. Uh, he also has played a lot of tennis recently. Um, he just won in Sydney this past week, and... He's already following in the footsteps of his mentor, Leighton Hewitt, and complaining about scheduling at the Australian Open. So he's working hard. I, I hope he's not putting himself in, in danger of, of injury. But um, we wanted to talk about something else with, with Demonor and also with Tennis Sandgren. These are the two guys who won ATP events this past week, Demonor in Sydney and Tennis Sandgren in Auckland. And both of them were on the brink of losing a lot of points off of their ranking. Uh, in the case of Dimonor, defending finalist points from Sydney last year. In Sandgren's case, he's defending quarterfinal, quarterfinalist points from the Australian Open last year. I mean, I know it happened. I watched the matches, but it just doesn't, it, it still doesn't feel right to say tennis Sandgren, Grand Slam quarterfinalist. But it, it, it seems, this is one of those things that maybe it's just, it, just availability bias or something. Um, it comes up every time it happens. There are all these instances when players seem to be, they struggle for a while after a big result, and then they come back and defend a lot of points at the very last possible moment. Do you think that's a case where where something, I don't know, I don't want to say the word clutch, but I'm going to say it anyway. Do you think that that's a case where players are able to step up their game uh, when they have to, if they even if they can't do it the other 51 weeks of the year? I pity the analyst who tries to answer it because <laughs> the, the challenge is because it's a 52-week system and that's not arbitrary, it's intentional, they often are in situations like Demonar where, where he's defending points at the same event, which means he's playing the same event, which is in his own country. Um, he has good memories there, but also maybe there's something special about that event and the surface and the balls and the officiating and the scheduling and the food and the player's dining room and anything else we could think of that really favors him. So maybe he was clutch. Maybe he stepped up and, and won those points when he needed to because he knew he needed to. Maybe he's just really good at Sydney and that comes around every 52 weeks. With Sandgren, there's a bit of a stronger case because Auckland is a little different from the Australian Open, but it is the same part of the world. Um, and generally the warm-up tournaments try to replicate the conditions of the Grand Slam. So, yeah, I think it's a really hard one to answer, but it's, it's, it does create this fun extra storyline to watch. Like, whether Sandgren wins Auckland isn't otherwise particularly interesting. I mean, he didn't go in as a seeded player. He wasn't going in as a wild card or as a qualifier. But because he has on the line, like, will he be able to keep enough points to stay on the main tour and not drop back to challengers that there was something bigger on the line than the Auckland title, which was a big thing on the line for tennis Sandgren. I think it was his first, uh, tour level title. Uh, yeah, I think in, in both these cases, they would be bigger storylines and more clutch if it was the difference between them, like, you know, making it into the Australian open or not. I guess the entry has, has long passed for that, but making it into a big tournament down the, down the line, like Indian Wells, or Miami. Uh, I think Demonar kept his seating. No, I think his seating was already set, right? Yeah, seating was set with the previous week's ranking. Yeah. So and he's seated. And he's seated. He's in the top 30. So it's 
with both of them, it was like not, it probably wasn't life or death. I think Sangren would have still stuck around the top 100, even if he hadn't had such a good result. Um, it was probably, there was more at stake for him, for sure. Uh, but it was just interesting to see these two guys who could have fallen a bit in the rankings uh, take advantage of not very strong fields and run to the to the titles. And they both played pretty convincingly, too. Yes, Samgren uh, looked really solid at times. I watched the final against Cameron Nori. Uh, so Sandgren actually had, I think, some tougher matches to play before the final than he did in the final itself. And he beat Philip Kohlschreiber pretty convincingly in the semifinal. So it was maybe one of the best events he's ever played. Like you said, Carlo was his first tour-level title, so there's a strong case to be made for that. It is a bit odd that he, by def- defending, or I guess sort of defending those Australian Open points a week early, he's, I think he reaches a new career high on Monday of 41, something like that, and he's going to immediately lose all those points, uh, assuming he doesn't defend the Australian Open quarterfinal position. I'm, I'm thinking that's a safe bet, but uh, he will have one week in, in at number 41 so and as you say it'll be enough points to keep him around tour level at least get him into like the u.s 250s and tournaments like that he'll i think he'll end up on the fringes of like masters level qualifying but still be able to get into grand slam main draws which is where all the money and some of the big opportunities are um so yeah, it was interesting to see see those two two win last week. The other name I think we've probably talked about Sophia Kennan as much as as our experience watching Sophia Kennan can bear. But it's worth noting that she won her first title in Hobart this week. So really strong result for her, another young American. I said another young American, implying that Tennis Sandgren is a young American, which he really isn't. So Sophia Kennan, a young American. But Jeff, he's 27, and I read an article <laughs> that he could continue improving well into his 30s. Yeah, this is this is really frustrating that you're a better advocate for my work than I am. Um, Jeff think, doesn't believe anything he writes. <laughs> yeah, I'm so contrarian, I automatically disagree with myself. Uh, hopefully it makes for a good podcast host, I don't know. Um, the other titleist this past week was Petra Kvitova, who's a, t- a totally different level than Kennan and Sandgren and Demonor, in that she is a top 10 player. She's someone who's already in the conversation to to win the Australian Open. And that's a good segue, I think, into talking about the, the elephant in this fortnight's room. So let's start on the women's side. Wait, is Kvitova the elephant in the fortnight's no. room? Oh, no, the Australian the, Open. The is. Australian <laughs> Open is the elephant. Kvitova, Kvitova is the dashing elephant rider. I don't know. Um, it's something completely inoffensive. That's the main point. We um, love you, Petra. Yeah, we absolutely do. Um, so the first thing that, that struck me about the Australian Open is because the top of the women's game is so tightly packed in terms of ranking points, there are 11 women with the chance to end this tournament number one. I mean, the that's got to be a record. I mean, the, a lot of the players at the bottom of that list uh, require a lot of things to go their way, namely Simona Halep losing early since she's still the, the favorite to get out of this number one. But Petra is one of the many who could end up number one at the end of the tournament. And as we've talked about, I mean, probably since the end of the U.S. Open, uh, it, it's anybody's ball game out there. There's so many players who wouldn't shock us to win this title and given how the last two years in women's tennis have gone it, it the title could well go to someone who would shock us um one of the women who has a chance to be number one at the end of the tournament and maybe one of the weakest chances is caroline wozniacki who is our defending champion uh, people aren't talking about her too much partly because she's lost her one match in the warm-ups that uh, Bianca Andreescu in Auckland a couple weeks ago. But she is the defending champion coming off of her her one career Grand Slam title. What do you expect, Carl, from Wozniacki going into this tournament? Fourth round. So you think she'll beat Sharapova in the third round, assuming? If Sharapova reaches it, yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's there's too many obstacles in their section preventing them from getting to a round three. But so 
the probable round four opponent is Ashley Barty, who was the the losing finalist to Kvitova in Sydney yesterday. Uh, you would favor Barty over Wozniacki there? Yeah, I really like her ELO rating on TennisAbstract.com. <laughs> wow, I should continue paying you, Carl. <laughs> uh, yeah, Barty is rated quite high. I'm assuming the, the Sydney final will only help that a little bit more. So yeah, Wozniacki is is in this odd position as the defending champion and not really a, a big part of the conversation. So so since you like Barty's ELO, you're not so big on Wozniacki. Uh, let, let's talk about the pool of players we do think are likely to win this tournament. And I think we talked about this last week and you mentioned Serena. I have to throw Simona's hat in the ring because she's the top seed and she's my favorite. Uh, we've mentioned Arena Sabalenka a lot. She's she, Her name has really gotten around as the, the sort of popular dark horse pick this year. Uh, besides Sabalenka and Serena and Simona, who else do you think we should be watching carefully? Well, we talked about Kvitova and Barty. I, I would be watching both of them closely. And then two players who had big slam results last year and also have a shot at number one, Osaka and Stevens. So we've got seven names. None of them <laughs> yet are Angelique Kerber. Who's yeah, she was the next one I was going to mention. But yeah, yeah n- number two and... Uh, Last year's semifinalist and Wimbledon champ of, last year, yeah, yeah. So that makes her our number seven or number eight favorite, something like that. Uh, uh, number eight mentioned, sure. Number eight mentioned, yeah, um, yeah. It's a it, it's it's a really wild situation at the top of the rankings there. What do you think from from Serena? I mean, we, we saw her play in in Hopman Cup. Uh, so she, she hasn't had any truly competitive matches for, for quite a while. Um, we talked around this a little bit last week and settled on number seven as our year-end ranking for her. She landed in a, a tricky section of the draw because Serena Williams and Simona Halep could face each other in the round of 16. Um, Venus Williams is in there as well. Uh, Serena's in a, a, a really unique situation that she could play a slam finalist in every round from round two on. She could get Jeannie Bouchard in the second round, Sam Stozer in the third round, and then Halep and plenty of other options after that from round four on. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of obstacles just in that small section of the draw. Uh, you've talked before, Carl, about Serena's ability to sort of play her way into a tournament uh, and this would seem to be a time that she'd need to do that since she doesn't have a lot of, of match experience in the last few months. Uh, do you think that's it's going to be a problem from her for her having to jump right in from the second or third round and, and play pretty well against solid opponents from the get-go? Well, a few caveats first. One I think there's a good chance she won't face Jeannie Bouchard or Sam Stoser in those rounds if she reaches them. Uh, I mean, they're just not sure things to win any match. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it could be a tough it could be a tough road, certainly, from the point of view of the slam pedigrees of opponents. The, the other caveat is, unless you've studied it or seen someone else study it and I missed it, I don't think we really know that Hopman Cup is less meaningful from the point of view of how a player is going to do at the Australian Open than any other pre-Australian Open event, even though it is an exhibition. I don't really expect anyone to study it because the Hopman Cup is is ending, but it it seems like I've I've watched the matches and they seem somewhere between a totally giggly kind of exhibition and an official event and there usually are some really good players there and Serena did quite well there so I don't know I guess she'll be a, a data point of one for how meaningful Hopman Cup is I well, let, let me stop you there Carl yeah um, yeah it's an interesting point I I didn't even think about it when I was implying the opposite but the one thing I did study a few years ago was I looked at IPTL results the Indian Professional Tennis League I think that's what it stands for which are, 
I don't know where you put it on the continuum of exhibitions to, to tour matches, but it's somewhere in the middle, like World Team Tennis or maybe a little lower than Labor Cup. I don't know. But the, the point is, is that I expected to find that the results were a lot less predictable than tour level matches because they were giggly and there'd be more upsets because players weren't that invested in the results. But they they were somewhat more unpredictable, but they weren't that much more unpredictable. And I would think that wherever IPTL is on that continuum, or was since it disbanded in financial ruin, um, Hotman Cup is is closer to a real match that players care about. So you're probably right. Like we, we shouldn't completely dismiss it. it and it, it's certainly better practice than some of the other exhibitions that were just played this last week alongside Sydney and Hobart and Auckland. By the way, it's International Premier Tennis League. I think they had one team in Singapore. Of course, no one cares because, as you said, they've disbanded. But. Yeah, I think they had one in, in Philippines, and one of them might have played in Japan for a while, but they were really flailing around for options toward the end. Maybe one in Dubai. So it was international. It just was Indian-based. So in terms of you know Simona versus Serena, that would be you know that could be the final easily so it's a shame it's the fourth round matchup that we're expecting and i i don't really know what to expect i do have this sense somewhat data driven that serena in the fourth round is even more dangerous than serena in the first round so maybe if simona was going to get that bad draw she'd have preferred to get it earlier in in the tournament but it's it's kind of a bad draw for both of them yeah and simona has a tough draw all around. In, my heart sank when I saw that at the very top of the draw, we have Simona Halep against Kaya Kanepi, who is the woman who really disposed of her easily in the first round of the U.S. Open, a match that I unfortunately was present for. Um, so she, she she is coming back from an injury. She lost the one match she's played. That was against Ash Barty, to bring her name up again. Um, she has to come back against Kanepi, someone who's not going to give her a lot of chances to get in a rhythm, someone who's beaten her recently. If she gets past Kanepi, she plays Sophia Kennan, who's coming off a title. If she gets to the round, into the third round, um, she could face Venus Williams, who always has the potential to be a very challenging opponent, and then, and then Serena. So really tough road there. And on the topic of Simona, uh, and actually Venus as well, is, 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 works out nicely, that both of these players are coming into the tournament without coaches. And Simona was working with Darren Cahill for a couple of years in a, what seemed like a really profitable partnership and called time on that. Simona's working without a coach right now. Venus Williams uh, parted ways with, with her coach of several years. And I'm wondering what you think about that, Carl. We've seen players be successful in the past without coaches, but at the same time, like someone like Simona, who's facing such a, a tricky path against players who have beaten her before if I were her I'd I'd want one of these top tennis minds in my corner to to help me puzzle out how to handle the situation I mean what do you think about this decision to to go into the season without that kind of help yeah I I just wish I understood so much better and with so many more details what a coaching relationship typically is like and what a player is missing when going without one I'd imagine as the number one player, Simona still has a pretty large team. And I think we've talked before about the blurred lines between roles in those teams and that she's probably getting something that's like coaching or like certain aspects of coaching from other people who are paid to support her and help her have the best chance to win. The other thing I wanted to hear you talk more about, because you follow her so closely, there were some some breaks in her coaching relationship with Cahill at times, and I th- thought there was one where she was she had some poor results, and he kind of broke up with her, and then she had good results, and they got back together, something like that, which was interpreted the way I just said it, but could also be interpreted as she was struggling with a coach and did well without a coach. I'm not sure. I don't remember them breaking up exactly. Um... I think whenever this happened, this was at a time that I wasn't able to pay really close attention to the news, but there were times where he didn't travel with her. I think not last year, but in 2017, he didn't go on the Asian swing, uh, and Andre Pavel did instead. And there were 
other hitches in their relationship. Um, so she's worked without him at times. Um, but as, as you point out, she does have a team in addition to that. And yeah, like you, I, I don't know who, or even if we know who's around, we don't know exactly what they're doing and what they're contributing. I mean, it's not that she has no help. It's just that we've grown accustomed to the top players having like a, having an established presence in their corner, like someone who's been around for a long time knows how to handle these situations. And she doesn't have one of those. Um, so th- this is what I was thinking of in 2017. She had a loss to Kanta in Miami. Cahill was unhappy with her effort and stopped coaching her. Uh, and then she said, just with my attitude, I knew that is the only thing that I have to change to have him back. So I work hard and I changed she reached the semis in Stuttgart, and then when she finished Stuttgart, he's, this is her saying, he said he saw enough and he's ready to come back. Oh, okay. So, so she did all right without him back then. Yeah. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see whether she stays with the, with, with the no-coach option. It'll be really tough to analyze her performance here because I mean, she doesn't know what exactly to expect from her body at this point. She was hoping to test her back in, in Sydney. And uh, even though she lost to Barty, I believe she said that it, it wasn't a physical issue. She felt fine. She just got outplayed. But if she does have to play several matches, then you no know, loss to Serena in the fourth round could be the result of any number of, of factors. Uh, it could entirely be because Serena just outplays her, as she's done before. Uh, but for both Serena and Simona, it's a, it's a tough path. Uh, One of the famous no-coaching scenarios from the past that I wonder what you think about and whether it applies to Simona and Venus, didn't Federer sort of go without a coach for a long time? Yeah, not just sort of. I I think... Completely? Completely. I think, yeah, I mean, as we've been saying, it's not truly completely, but, um, I mean, he had Severin Luthi with him, I think, through that whole period. But, yeah, I think it was a couple of years with, with no coach, and he managed just fine. He probably should have, like, hired Gaston Gaudio or someone who knew how to beat Nadal on clay. That would have been the smart move at that point. That's that's a great point. Yeah, and then, you know, this raises the question of anything with Federer, of, like, does this apply to other players or not? Yeah, I mean, it, it, even though Simone is number one, she's a very different kind of number one than Federer was then. So, yeah, if it, I can't imagine making the decision she's made in her position. But, of course, there's so much that we don't know. Uh, so, wrapping up talking, talking about the women's draw, we're going to spare you the, the sort of standard run through the draw and predict every quarter because it's as boring for us to do as it is for you to listen to. Um, we have to do at least one prediction. So, if you had to pick one name, Carl... Who is your most likely Australian Open women's winner? I've got one, by the way, as well. Serena Williams. For a second there, I was afraid you were going to wait until after the tournament was over. Um, <laughs> I'll get back to you in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. this is going to be a, the longest ever episode of the Tennis Abstract podcast. Um, I thought you might go with Serena. I'm saying Petra. Um I think she's playing close to as well as she ever has. Uh, I was impressed with her comeback against Ashley Barty. I mean, we've seen her lose some matches pretty badly when she didn't show up with her A game, but she had a really rough time in the first set and came back from that. So I think she's healthy and, and ready to at least dominate for a couple weeks. So with the caveat that all of these people are probably 15% or lower, uh, that's my pick. So the general rule on predictions is the more words you have to say after the name, the less likely it is to happen. Yeah, definitely. So more likely for Serena? That's my contention. The right answer would have been yes, since that's even fewer (laughs) words. Or Um, pausing for two weeks. (laughs) Yeah, pausing for two weeks. That's the way to to make sure you're correct, but probably not as impressive. Um, So before we get to the men's side... Let's touch on this new match format at the Australian Open this year. So this, 2019 is the year of four Grand Slam match formats. Uh, 
the Roland Garros is sticking with no tiebreak in the final set. The U.S. Open is sticking with a standard tiebreak at 6-6 in the final set. But Wimbledon decided to go with a tiebreak at 12-12 in the final set because Wimbledon is just special. Then the Australian Open decided it was even more special. So at 6-6 in the final set, we're playing a, a super tiebreak first to 10. And we've already seen a few of those in qualifying. So the two issues that seem to come up around this are, are one, is this particular approach a good one? And the other one is, how do we feel about having four different formats at the four slams? And Carl, I think we touched on this last week. You're generally in favor experiment of experimentation and variety and don't really have a problem with, uh, uh, with four different formats at four slams. But what do you think about sticking a super tiebreak at the end of a final set like this? There's a third issue that, that you didn't raise, which is this would have made charting matches for the match charting project to Tennis Abstract much tougher, but Jeff is out with a new template, and you can chart without fear. It's going to work out for you. Yep, 10% bonus for Carl for this week's podcast salary. Uh, I have a spreadsheet tab open where I figure out what the percentage is on zero, and it's not very good. So super tiebreak at six all. Uh, I I like super tiebreaks. I don't know. I mean, I I don't like that they replace third sets in doubles matches on tour, but while they're happening, I think they're really exciting. They have they they seem like they often have a lot of plot to it, plot twists and comebacks and they feel more substantial than a tiebreak. So if there's the sense that we don't need to keep playing games, we know these players are pretty evenly matched, but we are still set, settling something that's of great consequence, a Grand Slam match, going to 10 instead of 7 seems like a small uh, concession to make. And yeah, I I I think it's it's a clever idea. I think we go with 10 because 10 is what we've decided is a super tiebreak, but it could be a different number. And, oh, um, please. No, if anyone's maybe, listening, no more different numbers, please. Maybe like 11, maybe 11 and a half. Um, and yeah, you were you you summarized my general thoughts on this pretty well. Like everyone was yelling at each other about what is the best way to end fifth sets and third sets early um, other than just doing a tie break like we've always done. And one way to answer it is to try different formats. It's it's annoying in a lot of ways, including cognitively, but on the other hand, there are so many differences we've just come to accept between the different Grand Slams, and tennis is already extremely fractured, so why not use the fractured nature of tennis to try out different things? Carl, thank you once again. This is two weeks in a row that you've given me a good slogan for the website. Um, last week, I think it was, we predict things because it's fun and we have to. Um, and this week it's tennis abstract, cognitively annoying. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I know you weren't saying we are cognitively annoying, but that's something for all of us to aspire to. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, the, the, we're falling into the same trap I'm about to accuse everyone else of falling into that everyone's talking about it because everyone's talking about it. It's like it's, it's a news story because people need news before a grand slam and before any matches take place but ultimately i can't get that worked up about it um even after i spend a few hours with excel formulas fixing the match starting template um because ultimately it doesn't matter that much i mean these matches that are being altered by a a super tie break at six six uh, for one thing they're going to have to be decided somehow i mean at that point the players are extremely evenly matched and i mean maybe one of them is a 52% favorite or a 51% favorite or something. And an advantage set would be the best way to ultimately identify who the better player is that day. But it's a really small difference between that and a super tie break or a regular tie break or going to 12-12 and playing a regular tie break. Um, so I understand the the desire to put some kind of cap on how much one match can screw with the broadcast schedule as we saw with the Wimbledon semis last, last summer. But, um, I mean, we're, we're just tweaking around the edges. So I think people are getting, those people who are actually getting worked up about this are getting worked up about close to nothing. It really is just this small level of cognitive annoyance and 
hopefully one of these things will be decided as the consensus and we can all move on and talk about more interesting things. Like, I can't think of anything right now. Hyun, Hyun Chung's likelihood of making it to the men's semifinals again this year. Better than the women's semifinals. Yes. The, one one half serious note of, of things to watch for with the different formats is, will anyone screw up and, like, do the wrong thing, like keep playing at 6-all? And, and relatedly, have they programmed the umpire's computers as intelligently as you've programmed your template to prevent that from happening? Well, and my I, template is not tested yet or not tested very much, so that's a, that's a very low standard of intelligence. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know how much the umpires' computers have been. In in the 70s, when tiebreaks started being introduced generally, I think it was the 70s, there, and also when the – yeah, there were, there were just different formats being tried out, so there's some precedent for it. There are some screw-ups, like tournaments were were playing fifth-set tiebreaks when they weren't supposed to because everybody forgot how it was supposed to work. So that's something there's I'm a- watching out for. And there's a couple of other more recent examples of this. Uh, one is, coming back to Andy Murray, there was, I think it was two years ago in Dubai, um, he played just a monster tiebreak, I think it was against Cole Schreiber, um, that went to, I don't know, 25-23 or something like that. I'm surely getting all the details wrong. But whatever it was, um, it went on so long that they all forgot to change sides at the right time at 12-12 or 15-15 or something. So instead of switching sides at 12-12, they switched sides at 13-13. Uh, and considering that it went to 25-23, it's probably didn't affect things too much. Yeah, probably not. Uh, uh, it was 2018 at Dubai, second round, 2017. Okay. The, the score was 2018. The year was 2017. Yeah, that's confusing. Yeah. Okay. It would be really confusing it. if Murray won 2017. Definitely something went wrong then. Yes. Another, I actually have two more. Um, one more example is, oh, there's one that I, a fourth one that I just started recently. I can't think of the details though. But the next one I can tell you about is um, the Roger Federer's first title, I believe, in Milan against Julien Buter. Um, I think it was a second set tiebreak in... in Ado charted this one. I didn't chart it, but we ran into a problem with the match charting spreadsheet because they made a mistake on court. The umpire didn't notice that the player, that the wrong player served to start the third set after a long tiebreak in the second set. And it wasn't even that watch- long. It was nine seven. Come on, umpire. No, it wasn't that long. Um, but we both watched the video again and didn't find any sign of any confusion later on. Like no one ever realized that the wrong player had served first in the third set. Uh, and because of that advantage, that, that that's basically why Roger Federer has gone on to become such a great player. Uh, Jeff is trolling you, everyone, just like he always is. Just like I always am. And the third one is the most obscure of all. I went to a world team tennis event in Philadelphia, I think... I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, a long time ago, uh, and Venus Williams was there. She was playing the women's singles, I think, against Mashona Washington, and they got to the, I think it was a match tiebreak. I forget what the rules were exactly then, but they were really experimenting. So they were playing a tiebreak to 10, but they, the server switched every three points, not every two. So... Every single time the server switch, Venus was doing it wrong. I think Mashona had been playing more world team tennis, so she understood the rules, but Venus was just the occasional guest, so she had no clue what was going on. By the end of the tiebreak, she was just looking up to the, the umpire to see whether she should serve or not. Uh, I hope it doesn't come to that, but players do get confused. There, as, you, as you suggested, Carl, there's, there's some habit involved that could be tough to break. So... As our time is approaching the hour mark, I didn't find a lot of super interesting stuff to talk about on the men's side, especially compared to the women's draw. I mean, there's there's captivating matches from round one on on the women's side. I don't think there's as much to draw you in on, on the men's half. But I wanted to, to think back to a couple of, of big results, one of which was Chung's getting to the semifinal, one of which was Kyle Edmund getting to the semifinal last year. Um... Do you think either of these guys has much of a chance of, of defending their points again this year? 
not a very good chance. Edmund has been healthier and more of a tour presence, but yeah, I'd be I'd be surprised if either of them were back in the semis. And another better than expected result last year was Tomas Burdich, and we touched on that last week after Burdich made the final in Doha. Uh, and you were saying last week that Burdich could surprise us a little bit. I guess once we've said he's going to surprise us, it's not much of a surprise. But since he's coming in unseated, uh, he's not expected to do much. But do you still see it that way, that he he could be sort of a, a dark horse to maybe be a surprise fourth round or quarterfinal name in the mix? Definitely. I haven't studied his draw, but he he's a threat to maybe anybody but Rafa. <laughs> Okay, and and Rafa, we don't know about his health, so I guess Rafa is a, is the biggest threat to Rafa. Yeah, definitely. Uh, an interesting match to watch for could be Rafa's match in the third round. Uh, he is lined up to face Alex Dimonor, who we were talking about earlier. Uh, Rafa beat Dimonor pretty easily in Wimbledon, also in the third round last year. But we don't know how Rafa's handling his health. We uh, Demonor is playing well. This is in Australia. There's some things that might be tilting in the Australians' favor. So that could be an interesting match there. Have you read or heard anything about Rafa's new serve, Carl? No, nor have I seen it. What, what oh. do you know? No, I don't. I was hoping you would know. So we're going to leave our listeners uh, twisting the wind on this one. There's plenty of people writing about it as well. I just haven't looked into it. But he and Carlos Moya developed a new service motion for him that he was using in exhibitions this past week so um, I'm interested to see how that looks how that works hopefully it, it helps him conserve his energy or can conserve his health a little bit so he doesn't go down the, the path that Andy Murray's uh, traveling right now um, you're on a roll Jeff with the puns it's, his serve is going to conserve twisting in the wind is a good serve description the draw is going to draw us in there's a lot uh, of good stuff. <laughs> In the match I was watching earlier today, uh, it was a Roland Garros semifinal, and John McEnroe, like I said, was on the call, and he described one second serve as an Americano twist. So in, in case you didn't know that John McEnroe was bilingual, there you go. Americano that, that's twist. pretty good. I like that. Yeah. Um, oh, and I, by the way, I take back what I said about Burdick not being a threat to Rafa. I have this idea of Rafa owning him, but Burdick did straight set him out of us, the Australian Open a few years ago. So Isn't Djokovic the one who owns Burdick? I mean, everyone does overall, but yeah, maybe Djokovic more than anyone. Now, I didn't think to, until just now to look at this, but is there any chance that Burdish will play Kevin Anderson? Oh, poor Kevin. <laughs> um, maybe this is a good point to make our predictions for the menstrual. You're going with Kevin Anderson? <laughs> Novak Djokovic. Yeah, I'm going Novak Djokovic also. So, so the interesting question is, if it's not Novak Djokovic, then who is it? I really want to say Andy Murray, but I think Federer. He looked, again, depending on how important Hopman Cup is, he looked damn good there. Okay. It's interesting. I'm going to say Zverev, just to be contrarian. I really, I, I, I don't have a good answer to that question. It seems like a foregone conclusion that Djokovic is going to win, but I should know better than that, especially since I'm producing forecasts that say there's a... 66% chance or something that or 64% chance that Djokovic doesn't win. So I'm going to I'm going to say this is the breakthrough slam for Alexander Zverev. He also has, played pretty well at Hopman. Yeah, he did. And has Djokovic lost three straight finals or something like that? I don't know. Definitely has lost one match to Roberto Bautista Agu. And he Actually, lost to Zverev two. in the tour finals and Kachanov in Paris. So I think those are his last three. He also yeah. made the finals of his last three tournaments, which is really good. No, that was a semifinal in Doha. Oh, yes. Okay, got it. Um, but it was against the eventual titleist, so, I mean, pretty close. But I'm not sure that losing to Bautista Agu is a terribly good sign. I mean, he had lost to, to him before in Shanghai, I think, a couple of years ago. But still... That feels like the kind of player he should be beating. I mean, it's not someone with any any outstanding weapons that just overpower him. I and mean, that seems yeah. like a little bit of bad similar time. game to his, but not as strong in most areas. Yeah, that, that's something that I think needs to be researched more. That 
I've, I've been saying this for a while and I need to look into it, but my belief is that if you're playing someone, like if you have a match between two players with similar styles, that's more likely to go according to the rankings or according to the predictions. Upsets happen when you have mismatched styles. Um, who knows if that's true, but if, if it is true, then Djokovic shouldn't be losing to RBA. I wonder if like just using height or just using ace percentage could be a good first approximation for style. Yeah. It could be. Yeah, I've always imagined doing it with aggression score, which we I mean we now have double digit charted matches for I don't know, close to a hundred players in each tour, so that would give us a pretty good sample. But um but yeah, it's probably not super different from ace percentage. So we have our picks, we have our backup men's picks. Um we are pretty much at the Oh, 65-minute mark. We're going crazy this week. Uh, Carl, anything we should leave our listeners with before we sign off on this one? Chart more matches in 2019, and that goes for me. It does. Are, 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 we, are we thinking more seriously about adding, adding CBNYC to the, the list of charting contributors? Now that you've given me a handle, absolutely. Okay. Right here, yeah, that, that obviously applies to everyone. I know a lot of the people listening are already match charting project contributors, for which I'm very grateful. We are about 150 matches away from the 5,000 match mark, which is just unbelievable. I, I, when I was updating the template, I was thinking back to what my expectations were when I first built this silly spreadsheet, and I never thought we'd get to 5,000 matches. But here we are. It's pretty exciting. And, Tons of data you really can't find anywhere else since the the powers that be in tennis aren't releasing anything interesting. Um, so on that super optimistic note that I've become known for, that's episode 44. Thank you as always, Carl, for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. Listeners, check out Carl's podcast, 30 Love. And I'm guessing we'll be back about a week from now, midway through the Australian Open. Lots of tennis to enjoy. So have fun watching the Australian Open.